Thank you for coming Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the queer improv show Thank You For Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We have a storyteller share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I am so excited about our guest that we have here today. Also a little starstruck, not to lie to you all. Um, we have Eric Marcus, he, him, his. Welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be on your show. Oh, I'm so honored. We met at a Keshet um, fundraiser where you... Um, shared some of your podcast episodes, um, Making Gay History, and uh, it was just such a cool night, and I'm so honored that you are now on my podcast. So happy to be here, and it's always fun to share archival audio, but we're doing contemporary audio today. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so we all have multiple coming out stories, um, and so I would love to hear one of yours. You're right about the multiple coming out stories, and in, in thinking about about the stories before I came here, the stories are really bookended. My oldest coming out story uh, was in 1976. It's a middle. It's, my story is now middle aged. Mm. Uh, it was the first time I actually came out to myself and, and acknowledged that I was gay um, in 1976, August uh, July 31st at about two in the morning. Mm. Um, but the story I'd like to tell is about the last time that I vividly recall coming out, which is about a decade ago, and I still feel a little bit a little bad about it because mm. I didn't come out. Mm. Um, so my partner and I were at a, a grocery store in upstate New York and doing what we do, which is to shop. Mm -hmm. And we were at the checkout counter and putting things on the counter. Um, and the young woman behind the counter looked at us, looked at our stuff, and she said, are you two brothers? Mm. Now, I'm the short gay Jew. Mm. Um, my partner is Irish Catholic. He is, I joke that he's the whitest man who's walked the planet. <laughs> um, we don't look at all alike. We both wear glasses. We're about the same height. Um, I guess generally well-groomed in the way that gay men of a certain age are. Um, and in that moment, I thought, I froze, actually. Mm. Um, I had vowed early in life that I would come out whenever, wherever, as long as I wasn't in danger. Mm -hmm. And I saw it as my responsibility, in part, to move the ball forward. Um, and in that moment, I had this sudden vision. And mind you, I'm 61 now, so I was probably 50 or 51 then. So no kid. I'd come out I don't know how many times. I'd been on national television. Um, coming out was nothing new. But in that moment in upstate New York, in this grocery store, I imagined suddenly if I said something that there would be a spotlight on me mm. and, and the manager of the store would announce homosexual in aisle three. Oh, my gosh. And why did I care? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, – what I said was, no, and left it at that. Mm -hmm. What I should have said was, um, no, we're not brothers. He's my partner, and we've been together for X number of years. This is before marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not married either, so it would be, still be partners. Mm -hmm. And I felt really bad about it. And I still feel, uh, I try not to beat myself up about it. I, uh, one should have one, uh, compassion for oneself. Yeah. There was no danger. 
And it would have been an opportunity to let this person know that, that this is who we were. She sensed there was something about us that indicated our relationship was more intimate than just buddies. Mm -hmm. And what she went to right away, because I think even back then people didn't think as much as they do now that yeah. uh, about same-sex couples, she thought that we were intimates in some way and we were brothers. Yeah. Um, but we're not, and I'm sorry mm -hmm. that I didn't uh, that I didn't say that. It's a simple thing, um, but in that moment, I choked. Yeah, thanks for thank you for sharing that. I know um, it just it reminds me of the in Rent when they're like in like bro like when they're in the in the. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like when I they're have in the, no oh. memory. <laughs> no, okay, great. No, so tell in, me the scene in La Vie Bohème, mm -hmm. um, where they're like doing their whole thing, and then someone's like. Um, the two, I forget now, I forget which two characters, but two men are, um, I, it's Angel and Tom. And they are um, like kissing or con being intimate mm -hmm. in some way. And then the people are like, whatever. And they're like, we're brothers. And then, right. and then the, and then Adina, Menz or not Adina Menzel. Well, I guess Adina. Um, <laughs> uh, what are their, what's the, um, Maureen and, um, gosh, Joanne, thank you. Um, and then they're like sisters, and then, and then they're like, we're close, and then they kiss. I don't know. That reminded me of that scene. It's, um, we had this happen also when we were on a, an adventure trip for my 40th birthday, and there were three straight couples also there. All the guys were celebrating their 40th birthdays. They were from uh, the Bay Area in California. And one of them said to us, so you guys brothers? It was like, oh, come on. You know, you know better than that. And that's just about what we said. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were we were the often when we traveled in those days especially we were the only gay couple mm -hmm. and so we were um, example one of of homosexual couple from New York City yeah um, yeah yeah I think um, like I totally get that like freezing moment of like you have to make like a split decision and you have to kind of negotiate and I, I can appreciate even though you weren't in danger that like. Is this a time to, you know? Right. Well, you look around. I always say to people, I get I ask, get asked advice all the time by young people, mm -hmm. especially about coming out to their parents, mm -hmm. and, and you really have to assess your circumstances and whether you're safe or not. Yeah. And safe on all these different levels. What happened in that moment, and I thought about it a lot mm -hmm. and discussed it in therapy more than once, um, I have old wiring. Yeah. I'm very hardwired for having grown up in the 1970s, yeah. um, 60s and 70s, and spent so much time hiding that when faced with a moment where I had to make a split second decision, mm -hmm. the decision tree within the base of my lizard brain mm. um, went in the direction of shutting down any possibility of being honest about who I was yeah. out of this visceral fear mm -hmm. from my childhood. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. Yeah. And I, like we're all, you know, even me, like growing up, I was born in the mid eighties, still have hard wiring and certainly like in a very heteronormative, cis normative way of, I mean, and that's too, like, I'm thinking about the, the person who was ringing you up had such a heteronormative approach to assessing what was happening in front of her. Um, and I think that for me, like, um, one of the 
the two most important, two of the most important things that I talk about in the trainings that I do for Keshet with all the Jewish institutions that I work with are breaking down what heteronormativity and cisnormativity are because it drives so much of how our society is built and how we think. Yeah, and how we wind up wired because of how we're Mm -hmm. raised in the society in which we live. Yeah. We all have expectations and judgments based on those things. Yeah. It makes me crazy the default judgments I make. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them are (laughs) judgments my grandmother made. Mm. I can hear her in my voice when I see someone who's not dressed age appropriately. Mm, mm -hmm. Uh, It's really funny to have those, um, it's like phantom wiring. Mm -hmm. You can't get rid of it. You can can intervene sometimes and stop yourself and remind yourself this is where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, My grandmother has such choice phrases about things. Mm. She's very judgmental. Mm. Um, And I I take after her. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, Yeah, it's like in the episode right before this, we were talking about, actually, this is great. So we were talking about Ellen DeGeneres, Uh and I know that you have interviewed her, and I want to dig into that in a moment. Um, But we were talking about um, the responsibility that comes with having a platform and how, um, and then the discrepancies of like, you are someone with a platform, but you also just a person and like negotiating what that is and like the responsibilities there. Yeah. and then we were talking about um, how important it is to evolve with the times. And um, I like we were talking about Ellen specifically of how like she was such a game changer and put everything on the line and lost it all. She did and she did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And part of the challenge for her was that she was a grown up mm-hmm. coming out in a, uh, in a very public way yeah. um, with little understanding of the potential implications and also how to operate in the world as an out lesbian famous person Mm -hmm. in a relationship with someone who um, also had no idea how to do it in a way that wouldn't endanger her professionally. But she also had this pent up um, and I'm, I'm not speaking for her. I'm just actually, I'm recalling our conversation, my my interview with her. Mm -hmm. She had this pent up wish to be herself and, and to not have to hide. Um, and that led her to be out in ways that proved to be harmful. I'm not sure, harmful professionally, I'm mm-hmm. not sure that there ultimately was any, any other way for her to do it. There might have been ways that were less challenging for her audience, um, but look at, look at how she recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, when I met her and interviewed her, she was at a really down moment, and it wasn't clear that her career was going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was as genuine and as lovely as one might imagine. Um, and uh, um, she thought I was a National Enquirer reporter when I rang her bell. Oh, that's funny. We had an appointment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I arrived at her house and rang the bell. It was one of those video monitor things, and those weren't so common 20 years ago when I interviewed her. And she said, hello. And I said, hi, it's Eric Marcus. And she said, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm here to interview you. And there was a long pause, and she said, Oh, oh, I thought you were from the National Enquirer <laughs> and you were bothering me. <laughs> anyway, she let me in and she had been napping mm. and was in her jammies. Love it. So we sat on her sofa. She was in her jammies. I was in my professional garb and mm-hmm. we had a great conversation. That's really nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I loved that, uh, that episode of, of Making a History with her. And I ended up, so my favorite t-shirt company is called Homage and mm-hmm. they pay homage to... Um, people who are, are 
game changers. Mm-hmm. And start, I think it started off as like a sports thing and then now it's evolved and they made a shirt that said, yep, I'm gay uh, um, in rainbow letters. And I was uh-huh. like, I love that because, you know, that's like, of course. Yeah, that's the quote. The cover. It was a cover of Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's hard to imagine now, a couple of things. Yeah. The power of Time Magazine. Yep. You know, yeah. Everyone read Time Magazine or Newsweek. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being on the cover of Time was a huge deal. And also it's hard to imagine now for anyone who didn't grow up during that time what a big deal it was for someone like Ellen to come out, what a risk it was, how much of a pioneer she was, yeah. um, how challenging it was for the people she worked for at Disney, mm-hmm. uh, Disney ABC. It was, um, <laughs> I was invited to a party um, in Chelsea where I live. My partner and I were invited to the party. It was uh, Ann Northrup, who's a, a pretty well-known activist. She had a party. There were 100 lesbians and me and my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a huge deal. There were parties all across the city. I'm sure there were around the country. And when, um, when that moment came in the episode where she, where she comes out, yeah. um, there were cheers that went up in the apartment and you could hear cheers outside. Um, it was, it was for LGBTQ people and we weren't even LGBTQ people then. We were just mm-hmm. LG, maybe B with a little not T yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a transformative moment. Um, yeah. Uh, and then, then followed by terrible stuff for, for Ellen. Right. Um, as she tried to navigate this territory that was fresh for her and, um, uh, and confusing. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, but she got there over yeah. time, took her time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's just, it's so um, brave and um, inspiring to watch someone literally trailblaze. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, when that episode aired, I was very young. um, And I remember watching The Ellen Show before that and still kind of just really still relating to Ellen in this way that I hadn't in other... Uh, with other characters or other people on TV. And then when she came out, I was just floored and was like, I can't believe this is a thing that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. And was trying to, I truly can't remember, but like trying to gauge my family's reaction too, because I felt like that would give me a pretty good sense of, because I knew that was something that I was struggling with too. Um, I don't, I actually don't remember what their reactions were, but, um, but then I read, um, her mom's book, Dear, uh, Dear Betty or Dear Ellen? Or is it Dear, Dear Ellen. Ellen, yeah, yeah, it was by Betty. Betty. I, yeah. Betty, I, I like yeah. Betty very much. Actually, I like Betty very much. I met her um, um, way back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, she's terrific, lovely, supportive um, mom. Mm-hmm. Um, we were on Columbus Avenue. It was a very cold day, and we shopped for a hat for her. Oh, amazing. Um, I think it makes a huge difference when you, when you know that your family has your back or at yeah. least one relative has your back or mm-hmm. somebody important in your life. Yeah. Um, the terrifying thing for, for most of us in coming out was whether or not we would be accepted. Yeah. Um, and oh, what a process that, that was. I was thinking about it on, on the way here today about how in some ways I really don't like reliving those memories mm-hmm. because there was uh, a couple of things. One is it annoys me that I was so, uh, that it was so important to me and that I was so fearful and so anxious mm-hmm. um, because I didn't have to be and it wasn't right that, that a, a a kid should be put through that. Yeah, totally. Um, 
on the other hand, those memories are still so vivid. I can remember where I was when I told my mother. I remember where I told my brother. I where, where I told my sister, my grandmother, my aunt, my uncle, um, the first guy I slept with. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, as I told him I was gay. He was the first person I told I was gay. Mm. And the next day he said, well, you know, you said you were, you were gay. And I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, because I couldn't quite acknowledge to myself what yeah. I had done. Um, it's just, it was just a series of, of tortured moments. Um, and then followed by enormous relief when, uh, yeah. when the reactions weren't so bad. Yeah, that's, that's another thing um, that I, when I go into do these trainings, of, I really try to talk to folks about how to respond when someone comes out because it's like, it is that fear of like mm-hmm. that kept, I mean, it kept me in the closet for 20 years and like a series of tortured moments is such a descriptive, like deep, deep cut, right? That I'm yeah. feeling so much right now of the first 20 years of my life, I was so depressed and so anxious and so tortured of like, I am going, I was, it was so clear to me that I was going to lose everything and everyone yep. if I came out. And, and truly it was um, like, I, my friend basically gave me an ultimatum and was like, you are just like a miserable human and you need to tell me what's going on. And so I wrote it, I wrote on a post-it because uh-huh. I couldn't even say the words. Right. And luckily her response was like, that's it. And like gave me a <laughs> hug and we right. cried. But it really wasn't. Then you said um, how Ellen was describing it, which is so true and, it, and is very common across all of these podcast episodes are this like pent up wish to be yourself. And like it's yes. sometimes you just get to a point where it doesn't matter anymore, any, th- any of the repercussions, because you have to just be yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's too much pressure. But can you imagine people who, who lived their entire lives? Yeah. Um, I have, um, I know a couple of people, uh, well, one in particular, um, who is still closeted. Mm. He's my age. We went to college together. And when I encouraged him when he was about 50 to come out, he said, now? You want me to come out now? I said, well, it could be now, or you know, you can wait until you're 60, and then it's worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, had lunch once with a guy who was interested in, in writing his autobiography, and was clos- he was closeted. And um, long story short, at the end of the lunch, <coughs> he was wrestling with two different phones. Mm. Oh, wow. And I said, well, why the two phones? He said, well, this is my straight phone, and this is my gay phone. Mm. And I thought life is way too short. Yes. Um, yeah. Way too short. Yeah. Um, but he had grown up in a time where it just wasn't acceptable, mm-hmm. um, and he continued to live by the old rules because mm-hmm. he couldn't, he couldn't imagine changing. Yeah. Um, you know, easy for me to say mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that that yeah. that he needed to evolve, but um, people get stuck. Yeah. Um, and they don't always get the help they need to be themselves. Mm-hmm. And, but we only get one time around. Mm-hmm. At least in my book. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this uh, um, YOLO has come up in every episode too lately. Of like, you only live once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, and how do you want to spend your time on Earth? Yeah. Um, do you want to st- spend your time on Earth pretending? Mm-hmm. Um, I also was terrible at lying. Mm. I remember once, um, it was my first year of college, my sort of high school girlfriend was over. My mom was there, and. Another friend was there, and I think my mother asked me what I'd done that Friday night, and I couldn't remember what I had told to each of them. 
Mm. But I had lied to all of them. Yeah. Um, and I remember in that moment feeling this terrible sense of panic, thinking, I'm terrible at this, mm-hmm. that I'm not going to be able to survive in the closet because I can't. But my life didn't depend upon it. My career didn't depend upon it in the same way that it did for uh, people a generation before me. Mm-hmm. So when everything depends on it, um, it's a, a, a much tougher decision. I got to meet a lot of, of people who came out in the 1950s mm-hmm. um, or even earlier um, and they and worked in the movement, mm-hmm. in the gay rights movement. They were really unusual people. Mm-hmm. Quite often they said, I thought, I thought I was right and the world was wrong. And they made considerable professional sacrifices by being out. Or they were forced out um, right. because they were fired from their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to imagine what it was like to grow up then. Mm-hmm. Um, and also hard to imagine what it's like to grow up now. Yeah. For me, what, 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 how different would my life have been? Mm-hmm. But then my life wouldn't be the life I have, and I'm very happy to have had the life I have. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we just had a conversation with our last guest about that of... Or, um, because I was, I have been, had been, I feel like I like, I feel like I solved it with this, this guest, Jay, um, of, of feeling like being born a mistake mm-hmm. and like, and, you know, quote unquote of God or higher being has this plan for you and you're born like, you know, with body parts that you don't connect mm-hmm. with or an identity that isn't yours, um, is it a mistake? And she was so wise in saying, well, it was, pro- it was God's plan to make you the way you were. And I was like, yes, because... It was God's plan for me to have, or, you know, whoever or whatever, a uh, top surgery. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's my journey. And mm-hmm. I am who I am because of all of the things that I yeah. went through. And I, I, I truly wouldn't trade it either. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't, you also don't know life, the life you would get if you had been different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't guarantee that it would be better. Yeah. You know, in our fantasy, if, if this had been different, then my life would be like this. Who says so? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very yeah. fortunate to have had a 26-year relationship now. Um, if I had been different, uh, if I had been straight, well, if I had been straight, I wouldn't be me. Right. Um, and actually, the one thing that I thought would ruin my life, being gay, has turned out to be um, the source of the most rewarding work that I've gotten to do professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's given meaning to my life. Yeah. Uh, so I can hardly complain. Yeah, no, that that is so. I feel like I could say that exact yeah. thing of the identities that I hold now literally drive all of the work that I do. Yeah. At Kesha and thank you for coming out and like the, the show and the podcast. Um, it also is my life's work and um, yeah, and yeah, and I know that if I would have chosen to stay in the closet, I just would have been. I don't know that I'd still I'd be here today because it was on such a downward spiral and could not imagine a future and it just. And I just, I feel so much compassion for folks who just don't feel like they can come out because of when they were raised and, you know, the way yeah. they're hardwired. And yeah. um, I just want people to be happy. I just want people to enjoy the time that they have. Yeah. And but it's very hard to persuade someone who is fearful that it could be otherwise. Yeah, um, definitely. And there are people for whom it is so scary, given their circumstances, that mm-hmm. they shouldn't come out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 15 years old living at home with, uh, with fundamentalist parents in a community where they won't be accepted, probably not a good idea to come out. Yeah. You know, if you can find, your, find a community 
And I hear from kids like this. Mm-hmm. One of my super fans for Making Gay History is a 15-year-old lesbian in Russia. Mm-hmm. I've specifically not asked her where in Russia she's from because I'm fearful for her. Yeah. Um, but she has found community, and she she translates Making Gay History transcripts from her podcast and posts them on her blog. Amazing. So that people in Russia who can't speak English can follow the podcast. I am floored by that. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah, and that's how she's found community. Mm. Yeah. Like I told you I was going to cry. Oh, that's like sorry. Said, No, no, please, no. That's in- amazingly beautiful. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. M- Mina, if you're listening, hi. <laughs> we correspond. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, one of the one of the programs that we do at Keshet is working with teens, and I think actually some spoke at the mm-hmm. event that you were at. And Impressive kids, yeah, yeah, definitely. And because I because I am there for a lot of those weekend retreats, I I also get teenagers asking me for advice and things like that. And um, it is it is my responsibility as an adult to say the same things that you are saying. Of like, yeah. you, you have to put yourself first, and you have to be safe first and foremost. And if staying in the closet for right this moment is what's going to keep you safe. That's, That's what the I right recommend. Thing. Yeah. And then finding community outside. Yeah. You know, these weekends, you're coming as an ally or you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I've had emails from kids saying, um, um, I can't come out to my family. I can't come out to my family. I've told my three friends at school um, that I'm gay, uh, but I can't come out to my family. And I think you've told three friends at school. That means you are out. And, I, and I'll write back and say, you're in grave danger of being outed to your family because three people are unlikely not to say anything to anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, the only way to, to be sure that you're not going to be outed is to not tell anybody in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you're talking to a 15-year-old or a 14-year-old or an 11-year-old. I've mm-hmm. gotten letters as, uh, from kids as young as that. They don't know. They don't know um, how best to protect themselves necessarily. They just know that they have a crush or that they don't want to lie anymore and they just can't stand it. Yeah. 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 That's really that's challenging. Yeah. I just, mm-hmm. and sometimes I, the, some of these emails, I just wish I think just, oh, just don't write me because I feel so responsible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how do you get them to, uh, um, I'm, I'm in correspondence with someone now in trying to get her to, uh, the kind of care she needs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and finding a community, but a lot of people live in places where there isn't an easily accessible LGBTQ community. Yeah. Um, so then you have to find one online, and then you have to be careful there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. I feel. I feel um, very. I don't even know what the what I'm trying to say. I'm glad at least these kids can they feel safe to at least correspond with you a little. I know it puts yeah, a lot of pressure yeah. on you. Yeah. No, they can. And they they can listen to the Making a History podcast mm-hmm. and and find out that they have ancestors. Yeah, that's all great. I feel that I've done my work by by sharing these stories mm-hmm. so that people have have roadmaps, they have uh, yeah. ancestors, they don't feel alone in the world. I thought at age 17 that I was the only one on the planet. Right. Um, these kids are growing up knowing that they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's I, I imagine it's transformative. Yeah. At least they tell me it is. Yeah, I mean, well, the representation piece is so important and yeah. like the difference of growing up thinking you like, so for me like I like I knew they were gay people mm-hmm. like that you know but the the idea of a non-binary gender queer trans yeah, that person, didn't exist no it didn't no, i mean no. it wasn't talked about it, it no existed. it existed yes <laughs> yeah. no and it's yeah. existed forever <laughs> right right yeah so you probably don't know that one of the people who funded the early movement uh was a, a trans man named reed erickson mm, i did not know that. um helped fund uh one in what became one incorporated in one magazine mm. um I didn't know it either until I started doing the work on making gay history on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's existed for a long time. But yeah. in my growing up, 
that was not uh, talked about yeah. at all. Yeah, and and still even like when I when I it still wasn't really being talked about at least in my to my knowledge 6 years ago when I realized that I was a genderqueer person mm-hmm. and cuz the only trans people I knew existed were on the binary um and so I I was missing that roadmap of mm-hmm. like I don't know where I exist or where I fit in and it also was a matter of for me like I wanting to have top surgery but the only people I knew who had had it were trans men on hormones and self-identified men and I didn't know anyone else. And so I kind of had to blaze my own trail yeah, and be like, yeah. I, I need this. Yeah. I have to do it regardless of So for I your think. generation, you are a trailblazer. Um, it's not a comfortable position to be in. It's hard. Yeah, and I resented it when mm-hmm. I was young mm-hmm. and thought, why do I have to explain everything? Mm-hmm. But I also feel that for those of us who are in a position to explain, um, who have the capacity to articulate these things, that we do have a responsibility. And right. sometimes it does piss me off, or it did when mm-hmm. I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I imagine it does for you sometimes mm-hmm. to always have to explain yourself. Yeah. But you're in a great position to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there will be people who benefit because you have done it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is very lovely when, when people reach out to me and say, like that post you said about pronouns or... You, you gave me space to share me needing to come out and like it was life changing. Like it, mm-hmm. it's those moments that it really is like those like rejuvenating of, okay, I am doing this work for a reason. Um, and it is, it does get very tiring. And yeah. it's like, I just kind of, we were talking about this too. Like, I just want to like read my book and like not have to explain myself. I wrote a whole book so I didn't have to. I wrote a book <laughs> called, um, is it a choice? Mm. Questions and answers about uh, gay and lesbian people. This was before B and T mm-hmm. um, and Q mm-hmm. because it, I got so many questions that I wrote a whole book with all the questions I'd been asked and then also I wrote questions to answer to provide answers for things that I thought people should know and it's all book um, amazing yeah so I don't have to explain anymore yeah just read my book buy, buy my book, buy my book. <laughs> yeah. but I don't have um, I really have I think one or two questions on on B the bisexuals and mm-hmm. maybe two questions on trans on trans stuff I don't think there's a question on non-binary this is now the book was last published 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So someone has to do an update. Uh, I nominate myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is, that's, I love that you did that. I started writing blog posts and then I was like, I'm tired. And was like, and oh. you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think, I think this podcast is, a, is, a, is an iteration of that, yes, of, like, of answering questions and have, in having these conversations and um, giving language to, experiences that maybe folks didn't know mm-hmm. how to talk about before. And conveying it in a format that people can uh, that people uh, consume. When mm-hmm. I was writing my book, people read books. Mm-hmm. Podcasts in some ways are the are the successor, mm-hmm. at least in short form, yeah. uh, to answering questions that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it puts a real voice. Um, when you read something, it's not quite the same as hearing it. Yeah. Um, which is also it's wild that I'm like seeing the vo- the voice of the podcast, which is I know it's like it's so cool. Okay, so we've been we keep talking about making gay history, but yeah. I want to kind of dig more into it a little bit. So it was first a book. Yeah, um, I was commissioned to write a book um, in 1988. It was published in '92 called Making History. Mm-hmm. It's an oral history of the lesbian and gay civil rights movement from 1945 to 1990. Ten years later, I did a new edition called it Making Gay History because it was um, less of a problem to use w- the word gay in the title mm-hmm. 10 years after the original. Um, and it covers the period, uh, I called it the half-century fight from 1950 to, two, to 2000. Um, I recorded all of my interviews u- using broadcast quality equipment. 
Um, I'm really glad that I decided to do that then. Mm-hmm. I asked my boss at CBS News, uh, where I'd worked at the time, what his colleagues at NPR, where he had worked, used for recording interviews. I thought that they might have value one day. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, I donated my whole collection of audio tapes to the New York Public Library with an agreement that they, they digitized the whole collection. And then in 2015, when I was trying to figure out what to do next with my life, um, I checked in at the library and they had just finished digitizing the collection. And to make a very long story short, what started out as a small education project using clips from my audio files uh, became a podcast. Uh, we were taken under the wings of um, Jenna Weiss Berman at Pineapple Street Studios. Um, she had uh, been the pr- professor to, uh, to judge the work of a group of students in a podcast class. Mm. And one of those students was Sarah Burningham, who um, had the idea for the Making Gay History podcast. She had been cutting tape for me for the education project. And when she got down to about 15 to 30 minutes, actually 15 minutes, she said, these sound like podcasts. But she said she didn't know enough about podcasts to do it, so she went to podcast school, which is where she met Jenna Weisberman. And then five weeks after meeting Jenna, we launched the podcast, which is not which is not the timeline you want to work on, but I had a grant that required us to have material out by um, LGBT History Month Mm. in 2016, and we had five weeks, so we did it. Wow. Did our first season, so that's how the podcast came about. We've now been out for three years, and what we do is we bring LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it. And we've produced six seasons, a total of about 60-plus episodes, and we've had 3 million episode downloads in 200 countries and territories around the world. That's incredible. And it's incredible. And then uh, The Atlantic Magazine chose us as one of the top, uh, as one of the best podcasts of 2019. Wow. There are 700,000 podcasts. And what an honor. Yeah, so I joke with a little podcast yeah. that could. Yeah. And did. And, so. I, and I think it's, in, I, it's so incredible to me that... It's a, it's a gay podcast, right? And it's like one of the best ones of 2019 of 700,000 yeah. podcasts. Yeah. That's like unfathomable to like a kiddo, like me, like as a kid thinking like something. Yeah, to me it's unfathomable too. <laughs> right, right, this right. This is work that I, I discounted for a long time. I called it my gay work mm. and kept mm. trying to get into mainstream journalism. Mm-hmm. And over time kept getting pulled back into this work. Mm-hmm. And now, I'm, now I, I, my internalized homophobia, at least around my work, seems to, to have evaporated. Mm-hmm. Um, this work is, is lots of fun to do. And it's led to other work. It's led to Jewish work now mm-hmm. because I'm also co-producer of a podcast called Those Who Are There, Voices from the Holocaust. Yeah. I um in in doing some research on you. Yeah. Um I saw that and I I was I'm was just in the middle of finishing or about to finish my friend Julie um her grandparents are were Holocaust survivors and wrote a book called um I Choose Life. Uh-huh. And um it's like you know, like when one thing kind of pops up in your life and then you see it popping up everywhere mm-hmm. and it's like okay, Holocaust is like now on on it's my mind bubbling a lot. up, yeah. yeah. Um, and also probably what's going on in the world, in the world right now. Sure. Um, so I want to put a pin in that podcast cause mm-hmm. I want to come back to it, but, um, cause I want to finish, um, making, um, gay history. So, um, I want to, okay. I have so many questions. So what, do you have a, f- a favorite interview that kind of stands out? Either it was because the banter was so good or the content was just mind-blowing or you cried or you so really many, connected. Well, or, so many of them are my favorites. Yeah. Um, one, the, two in particular were favorites. Uh, one, Wendell Sayers, who was in his 80s when I interviewed him, African-American, lived in Denver, 
um, was sent to the Mayo Clinic when he was 16 years old in 1920, where he was diagnosed as homosexual, mm. was involved in, in very modestly in the movement in the late 1950s, and his story just broke my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was leaving his house, um, on his front step, he said, do you think it's too late for me to meet somebody? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I lied because mm-hmm. it was too late. Mm-hmm. Um, given his circumstances and how closeted he was and his age, the odds are he w- wasn't going to meet somebody. Um, and I've, I, he stayed with me forever after. Mm-hmm. The other um, person was a woman named Edith Ide, better known as Lisa Ben. Um, and if you play word games, you can move around the letters of Lisa Ben and you'll see what it spells. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm, yes. I'm with you. Yes, yes, lesbian. <laughs> yeah. Um, Edith um, published the first newsletter for lesbians on her office typewriter at Arkea Radio Pictures in Hollywood, where she was a secretary, and her boss told her um, that she wouldn't always be busy, but she should look busy. He didn't want her reading or knitting, so she should figure out something to do. So what mm. did she do? She published a newsletter for lesbians on her office typewriter in 1947, in which she wrote about, she had a regular column called the Whatchama column, mm. in which she talked about her, about what was on her mind. And one of the essays was about her hopes for the future, mm-hmm. where she predicted the world that came to pass. Wow. Um, and she also sang her own songs that she wrote, um, and also songs that, uh, for which she wrote, popular songs for which she wrote her own lyrics, um, that she sang in gay clubs because she didn't like the entertainment in a lot of the gay clubs where the performers would make derogatory jokes about gay people and play to the straights who were in the audience. Mm. Um, so I sat on her front porch and interviewed her in Burbank, California, and when she told, I didn't know about her singing, I knew about her, about the newsletter, and I asked her if she could sing some songs for me. So 45 minutes later, she'd recorded 45 minutes worth of Edith Ide um, uh, singing her songs. We did a special bonus episode called Edith Ide's Gay Gals Mixtape. Oh she gosh. called herself a gay gal. Amazing. And the songs are terrific. Uh, one of my favorite lyrics is, I'm going to sit right down and write my butcher letter and tell her not to turn femme for me. Oh, my God. I love that yeah. so much. Yeah. Ugh, I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so those are just two of my favorites, but I interviewed yeah. over a hundred people and mm-hmm. I would say that the majority of my favorites, a few of them I didn't like at all. Mm. Um, but for the most part, uh, so interesting sitting with people and asking them questions and talking about their lives. Mm-hmm. It was time travel. Yeah. That's really, I, I love these interviews so much cause I just want to hear what people have to say and hear yeah. their stories and how, how they move through the world. Everyone has a story. Yeah. And they, stories connect us so, so, so much. And I love that. Um, I was listening to the episode with Dear Abby. Mm -hmm. I love Um, Dear Abby. That was such a lovely episode. (laughs) And like, I... Well, for people, a lot of people don't know who she is. Oh, okay. Um, She was... um, there's no contemporary like Dear Abby because people don't go to the newspaper to read one columnist. Mm-hmm. It was Dear Abby and Ann Landers, twin sisters who yeah. gave uh, advice. Dear Abby was read by millions of people every day. I read her, my mother read her, my grandmother read her, mm-hmm. and she was a voice of reason and very supportive of gay people early on. Mm-hmm. So if you think of who might be like that today, there's no one person. So it would be Ellen DeGeneres, Oprah, um, and every podcast, uh, influ- uh, every Instagram influencer who you follow mm-hmm. um, wrapped up in one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she was a celebrity. She was on all the talk shows and she was a real, she was a character in her own way mm-hmm. and Jewish, mm-hmm. um, which was, imp- uh, for whatever reason, important to me as a fellow Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and going to her house and pulling up in front of her house in Beverly Hills um, and walking up to that front door. I was so nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, and this double height door opens. It's a mansard roof, French provincial, whatever kind of house in, in, in Beverly Hills. And standing in the doorway was this under five foot woman, fully coiffed in lavender hostess pajamas and pink fluffy sil- slippers. Um, and I said, very nice to, m- to meet you. Um, what shall I call you? Mm-hmm. She said, oh, just call me Abby. Mm-hmm. And she led me into her house and um, couldn't have been more gracious or m- more supportive of my work. Mm-hmm. And I subsequently became very good friends with her daughter, who, who now writes the column, who's also very supportive of this work. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I pulled, I pulled some quotes from that episode because yeah. um, I just, they spoke to me and I was like, I love that this person is putting, is writing and saying these things for millions of people to read yeah. back when we didn't have Instagram influencers. Yeah. Um, so one was, she was just talking about radical love. And then she wrote, or she said, love them, love them, love them. I, I yeah. think I'm talking about gay people. Yeah, she's <laughs> talking about gay people. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I love that. I yeah. love that. <laughs> yeah. Three times. Um, and then the other one um, I, I pulled out was, to those who wrote to blast me for my refusal to put down the homosexual. The most burdensome problem the homosexual must bear is the stigma placed upon him by an unenlightened and un, or in, and intolerant society. Their sexual bent is as natural and normal for them as it is for us. Yeah. And I, I had to listen to it like a thousand times to like get yeah. the full quote. Well, she got it. Uh, she really got it. Yeah. It's just, and it just felt, it just feels, I don't even know why, why still now it felt so radical for me to like, I don't know how this is going to come off, but like for a, a, an older generation person. For an old Jewish lady. Yeah, an yeah. old Jewish lady. Who grew up like, in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. You know, who was born at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. You know, how did she come to this? And I asked her, how did you, how did you come to this? And well, there was a gay person in her life, Cloyd, her hairdresser, mm-hmm. um, who was like, a, was a son to her. Mm-hmm. So you know, we make a difference when we come out to people and share our lives with them. And that helped her understand. She also consulted with, um, with people like Dr. Judd Marmer, who was one of the people who was responsible for getting homosexuality removed from the list of mental illnesses. So she was a smart person mm-hmm. and, um, and a tough cookie, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of already talked about this, but I made a note to make sure I asked yeah. you. So you asked Abby, how much impact do you think you've had as one person on this issue? And so I know we've already kind of talked about it, but I'm wondering if like you get to have these like really like one-to-one interactions with folks who are emailing you or reaching out and having questions. But I'm wondering if you have a sense of just the, Im- the actual impact with all of this incredible work that you're doing. Like it feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was on, my, I was walking down my street in Chelsea the other day and I ran into a neighbor who moved 20 years ago. Mm. I didn't recognize him. He reintroduced himself and he said, um, my partner and I read your first book, The Male Couple's Guide, when it was published, and we credit it with keeping us together. Wow. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just mind-blowing. That happened at an event that I went to in, in Fort Lauderdale for the Stonewall National Museum and Archives. And one of the ushers who was there, one of the volunteers, um, told me how he and his, par- his new boyfriend went camping and took The Male Couple's Guide with them, and mm. they each highlighted the sections of the book that were important to them and then compared their notes, and he credited that exercise with 
forming a, helping to form a solid foundation for their now 36 year relationship. Wow. Um, and I said to him, I wish I had read that book <laughs> <laughs> and mm-hmm. followed that advice because I was much better at giving advice than following it. Mm. Um, yes, it's gratif- incredibly gratifying. Um, I often have no idea what impact my work has had on someone, mm-hmm. um, but then they'll, um, even after I've met them, and then they'll mention that they read Making History in College mm-hmm. or they've changed their major because of the podcast and they've been inspired to do something. In, uh, there's a guy who wrote who said, he was an engineer, a young engineer, 25 years old, and he decided his, his profession isn't very out, and he decided that he would be out and also founded an organization for gay engineers in New York. Wow. Yeah. Great. Because he listened to the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how broad an impact I've had, but I know that I have, mm-hmm. and um in my religious tradition, if you have a positive impact on one life, yep. you have saved the world. Yep, that, that seems a little grandiose to say, yeah. um, but I have had the experience mm-hmm. of having a positive impact on more than a few lives, mm-hmm. and that makes me feel like my life had value. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I, I think about that a lot, uh, that, that Jewish like thinking of um, when you save one life, you save the world. And... Um, it's just it helps drive my work too. Mm-hmm. Of like the, in, in, you don't you never know the impact that you're having on someone. Um, no, and you also don't always know the damage you do because I've done plenty <laughs> of damage to mm-hmm. to other people and some of the harmful things I've done, some mm-hmm. of the hurtful things I've done. Mm-hmm. Um, and not as it's not an excuse to say I came through life damaged because of the experiences I had, but I have come to recognize that the experiences I had led me to do some really hurtful things for which I'm very sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and like, take full responsibility for now. Yeah, and yeah. that's such a, an important distinction, too, of of that. Um, yeah, and yeah, I definitely have a lot of things in my life that I'm really not proud of. And mm-hmm. It's like, got to learn from them and just keep moving and growing yeah. and, and saying, evolving. Yeah, and saying sorry goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and meaning it. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. I um. I, I was so miserable in high school, I bullied people <laughs> and recently apologized to each of the people that wow. I, was bullying, I bullied because it just, I needed to, I mean, it was, it, and, and truly, I don't even think it was about like easing my own conscience. I'm just like, I need you to know like, f- like that I, there is no excuse for what I did. And I was being, I was being a terrible person and mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And I take full responsibility for that. And Everyone was like so receptive. One person was like, "Yeah, you were kind of an asshole," and I'm uh-huh. like, "I know. That's why I'm apologizing." Yeah. Oh, what a, that's such a good <laughs> example to set. I wish that Stephen Nemeth, who I was in um, in sixth grade with, mm. fifth grade, it was fifth grade. I hope he's listening, and mm. maybe he'll apologize after all these years for bullying me. Stephen, you know what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I punched him though. Well, he punched me first. It. Yeah, <laughs> got to stick up for I yourself. Punched him back. Yeah, I wish I'd punched him harder. Yeah, that's not very nice to say, but um, well, we do what we have to do to protect ourselves. Yeah, he was teasing me about how much I didn't know about sports. Mm. You know, and I don't care about sports. Yeah, and now I can say I don't care. I don't ever have to care, mm-hmm. and I don't care about the Knicks or the Nets or football or any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care. Yeah. Yeah, me but, neither. Yeah, but yeah. then I was I I was teased by some of the guys about that. Yeah, that is how oh, to be a kid is so hard. 
It is. Wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't do it again. No, I don't think I'd I I'd be would very either. happy to have my 40-year-old body back. Mm. But um, no, I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't even be 40 again. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good at 35 right now. So we'll see what the future holds. 35 is a real sweet spot physically. Mm. Well, for me, I don't know. We don't know. But, um, okay. Or it can so, be anyway. Yeah. From my experience, mm. 35 was, uh, did I, I didn't have back trouble yet. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've already had two major back surgeries. Oh, I'm God. kind of like, oh. I'm kind of like an old, like grandpa my whole life. So it is what it is. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, okay. So I want to switch gears to, actually, no, before that, I, I do want to know if you, if there has been like one important lesson that you've kind of like an important lesson or theme that you've kind of put together or found in all of your different, um, episodes that you've recorded? Um, very practically speaking, the most important thing is for oral history, for the Mm -hmm. kind of work I do is the capacity to to tell a good story. Mm -hmm. And then also to have a great editor producer who knows how to cut, um, a good episode. So no one theme emerges from all of these stories, but there was one thought that emerged from virtually everyone I interviewed, mm. which was the wish for their contribution to be remembered. Mm. They didn't want to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I take great pleasure in and felt great responsibility to do was to share these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed a lot more people than I included in the book. So I've had the opportunity with the podcast to share more of those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Almost all the people I interviewed, all the people I interviewed contributed in one way or another, and uh, whether by setting an example or by doing something different, um, and they almost all felt that they would never be remembered. Mm-hmm. So the fact that their stories are now here for people to literally hear mm-hmm. um, uh, has great meaning to me, and I know would have had great meaning to them. Most of them are now dead. Mm-hmm. So I have all these people who live inside my head mm-hmm. and now live online in podcast land. That's really, that's really yeah. neat. Um, cool. Okay. I'm going to switch gears now to um, the Holocaust podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm out of my mind. Why did I ever say yes? So, so you, you're, you're a co-producer on it. So I got an email from the director of the Fortune Off Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale, and he asked if I knew anyone who could produce a podcast that provided a window into their archive in the same way that Making Gay History provided a window into my archive. Mm-hmm. And long story short, I said, as long as you can stand working with someone who barely knows what, he do, what he's doing, I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood in Queens that was filled with Holocaust survivors and war refugees. So the subject matter was near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are testimonies that were recorded beginning in 1979. So I said yes and then put together a team. My co-producer is Nahani Rouse. She... Um, also produces a podcast called uh, Can We Talk for the Jewish Women's Archive. And we've had this great partnership. We just finished producing the first season. What week is this? What day is today? Today's the 20th. Monday. So last Thursday, we we posted the 10th episode of 10 for the first season. And the stories are really powerful. As As you'd expect, what makes them particularly powerful to my mind is how much they connect to what's going on in the world today. Mm-hmm. The first episode we featured was with, an eight, with a man who was separated from his family at age eight mm-hmm. and sent to a slave labor camp. There's a 20-year-old African-American soldier who faced discrimination growing up in the U.S. in Philadelphia, 
went to Europe as a soldier, found he was discriminated against in the military. And then, as he said, discovered the ultimate endpoint of racism at Buchenwald. He was one of the people who liberated Buchenwald. Mm. Um, it's story after story like that, where people um, live through things that, that don't sound unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Um, is the Holocaust didn't start out as the Holocaust. It started out in small steps. Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of those small steps being repeated now yeah. here in the U.S. and all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really scary. I remember, like, as... As I feel like those small steps were picking up steam and people were like, this is how the Holocaust started. This is in like just like on my social media and articles that I was reading. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying to think that. And it's like I was reading this book um, by my friend's Mm -hmm. uh, grandparents and I just was feeling so. So I haven't listened to that any of those podcast episodes yet because I was like. I think I can handle one. Pol- yeah, one yeah, Holocaust, it's a lot to handle. Yeah. Um, medium at a time. Yeah, um, but just reading their stories. Um, well, one just uh, the themes that came up for me were um, their unwavering faith in Judaism and in their families and in themselves to stay alive mm-hmm. um, is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. But then the other part, the other, and like how. Again, like we get one life, and like we are so lucky to have these our lives, because um, so many people's you know, six million people, Jews were murdered. Well, my rabbi in Hebrew school always said to us to try to get us to behave. He said, six million died. You're lucky to be alive, which will really screw you Talking up if you're a guilt. kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, but the thing that I can't stop thinking about is, like, how did how did this happen? Like, how did it happen? Where were the allies? Where were the people who could step in and stop this atrocity from happening? And it's like... It's not so easy. It's, I know, it's, I know, but it's yeah. like, you know, and of course it's so far, you know, you know, I don't know how to really say what I'm trying to say, but I just, I'm like, I'm filled with all of this something where I'm like, we have to do something now so it doesn't get to a Holocaust again. And it's Well, it's and people scary. are doing things. Yeah. Um, because we also know how, how things turned out with yeah. the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, but the Holocaust didn't prevent the genocide in Rwanda. It hasn't presented, pre- prevented all kinds of, of awful things that we as humans do to other humans. Yeah. Um, it, it, not on the industrial scale of, of what happened uh, during World War II, um, but it is, um, it is scary to contemplate. What I, what I think is important about these stories that we're presenting in the the in, in those who were there, Voices from the Holocaust, available wherever podcasts can be found, <laughs> and also on our website at thosewherethere.org. Um, they are a lesson. They are a reminder of what can happen yeah. um, and what kinds of things can lead to wholesale slaughter of people we, we um, label as less than or other. Mm-hmm. We as humans are hardwired to be aware of the other and often be fearful of the other. Yeah. So it means fighting some of our basic instincts mm-hmm. to overcome and overcome those basic instincts because that road leads to ruin. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just the Nazi Germany didn't just destroy uh, um, European Judaism. You look at pictures of Germany after the war. And they destroyed themselves. Mm-hmm. It does make me think sometimes what will happen to us here. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you 
you bring, you try, you destroy others, you bring destruction on yourself ultimately. Yeah. And that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, we live very comfortably here in the U.S., especially here in New York City. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's so, it's just a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can tell you, producing a podcast with these testimonies is, um, uh, yeah. and listening to these stories, I thought I'd have a lot, of, a lot more nightmares than I've had. Just mm. two. Wow. Um, just two. But I feel it's my responsibility also as a, as a Jew and as a human. Um, mm -hmm. And I have the capacity to do this work. Yeah. So um, looks like we're going to have a second season. Oh, mazel yeah. tov. Thank you. Um, I can't wait to listen and be moved and learn. And yeah. It sounds really... Don't binge listen. But take, uh, okay. yeah, take your time. Work your way through them. Okay. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move us into our last segment. Yes. Which is a rapid fire questioning. I'm all ready. Okay. Um, no right or wrong answers except one. You'll know when, you, when it happens. <laughs> and it's all for fun and games. Um, pencil or pen? Both. Great. Acting or singing? Singing. Dogs or cats? Cats and dogs. Okay. Beach or mountains? <laughs> <laughs> Such has been the split with my partner for our 26 years. Um, I have to say beach, but also mountains. Okay. I love, I grew up near the beach mm. in Queens. Love the beach. Uh, Rockaway Beach. Where I used to go was demolished as part of urban renewal, but mm. um, Beach 56th Street in Rockaway was where we went. Nice. Um, meat or veggies? Oh, oh, that's a, that's, a, is that a binary? I have to, that's a meat. Uh, good point. Veggies principally, but, but a good roast chicken. Mm. Mm-hmm. Bagels or donuts? Oh, no question. Bagels, everything bagel. Okay, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, even everything bagel, even whole grain, everything bagel, but I really do deny myself bagels these days. Oh, um, I'm sorry to hear that, but that, you, got the right, you got the right answer. Meta one's metabolism slows to a crawl that, as you get older. It's already, it's already happening. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, train or plane? Oh, train. If I could never take another plane, I'd be a happy man. I love the train. Mm. There's something about a train that's magic, mm. to quote Amtrak. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I've taken trains. Wherever we travel, we take trains. Mm. And in, within countries, we'll try out new subway systems. It's, give me a train or a trolley. I'm a happy man. Cool. Um, sweet or salty? Salty. Coke or Pepsi? Neither. Great. Night or day? Day. Favorite kitchen item or utensil? Um... Our set of knives, hmm. sharp knives, but not too sharp. Great. Um, thank you so much for spending the afternoon no with us. No more questions. I know. You're always welcome to come <laughs> Happy back. Happy or sad. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you already asked day or night, but thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. It's talking with you. Um, are there social media handles that folks can follow you or Making Gay History? Or? Yes, the whole list. Yeah. So um, the Making Gay History podcast can be found wherever you get your podcast, but also at makinggayhistory.com. You can find us on social media at, um, on Twitter, we are Making Gay History. Um, on Instagram, we are Making Gay History Podcast. You can also find us on Facebook. My personal Twitter handle is Eric B. Marcus. And for those who are there, you can find us um, online at thosewhoarethere.org mm. or wherever you find your podcasts. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. Thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Thank you for coming out. 
Hey, it's Dubs Weinblatt, your host of Thank You for Coming Out. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. Please subscribe to our podcast on the platform of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps.